hardest one. Paul, servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, nor violent, nor pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Crescians are always, are always late liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. The Dragons had a good win on the weekend, St George Dragons, and they had a fan day, and Mick and Thomas got to meet some of the players, including Ben Hunt, who was a hero of Origin 3, and that probably explains why Mick's particularly unruly this morning. <laughs> and any heckling during the sermon will be severely frowned upon. Let me pray as we look at Titus. Loving Father, Almighty God, we thank you so much for Paul's letter to Titus. And what a wonderful letter it is, Lord. Your word is so rich and good and true and profitable for us. And we pray that as we study it, uh, we'll not only be inspired by this letter, but inspired to delve more deeply into your word in general. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, my name's Gavin. I haven't met some of you. And I'm on the ministry team here in the parish. And I lead our Goodwood Hills congregation, which is my great joy and privilege. And every so often I get to come here uh, and preach to you, which is also uh, a great joy and privilege. And I've been studying Titus, you'll be pleased to know, the last probably month or so, and I'm really excited uh, about sharing it with you. And I want to kind of start helping you get into it by telling you a little story. Um, when I first started here as an assistant minister in this parish, working for John O, uh, it was ten and a half years ago, part of my role was teaching high school scripture at Elizabeth MacArthur High, I switched. SRE at Lizzie Mack. I just finished Bible college. I'd never taught high school SRE before. And don't get me wrong, many of the kids at Lizzie Mack are really beautiful, but many are really pretty, pretty tough. And I think I felt a little bit like Titus, who'd been sent into Crete, uh, as I had to teach 
people teach kids the Bible there. I don't think uh, evil brutes, lazy gluttons is a fair description of the kids at Lizzie Mac, but a few of them um, yeah, were pretty full on. I remember my first lesson very well. I walked into the club. Mrs. Newton came in with me. She's a beautiful Christian woman and a teacher at the school, retired now. And uh, she got me up the front of the class and she introduced me to the class. And just after she'd finished introducing me to the class, one of the students came in late and said, this is effing BS, and he stood behind the door. And I thought, well, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. <laughs> Here we are uh, at Lizzie Mack. To say that I was nervous would be a massive understatement. I was mildly terrified. And there was lots of kind of ups and downs, but mostly ups over the next three years as I taught the gospel to the kids at Lizzie Mack. And I can't help but wonder if that's how Titus felt as he was sent to Crete. Crete had a reputation for being particularly difficult, particularly opposed to God. In time, I came to learn that these kids at Lizzie Mac needed the gospel just like me, and they responded to the gospel as well. And I had the great blessing and joy of seeing that over the three years, seeing these kids respond to the gospel, seeing our lunchtime group grow, seeing more and more kids transition from our lunchtime group into our youth group um, in our church, which was a massive blessing. Like Titus, I was given the immense blessing of seeing up close the amazing transformational work of God through his grace to us in the Bible, through his word. Now, I wonder, as you had maybe your first look at chapter 1 of Titus and you saw this description of the people of Crete, Cretans, always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, I wonder, what did you feel what did you think about the fact that Paul was sending Titus to this place to preach the gospel and to plant churches? Are you thinking, what a waste of time? These people have got no hope. Are you thinking, Paul's mean? Why would he send Titus into the lion's den? He should go himself. Or has Paul richly blessed Titus with his golden opportunity to see the mighty and transformational work of God's grace in the world, at work, in Crete. Well, we're going to find out, aren't we? Now, if you're following along on your handouts, we're up to point one. And we're going to look at these first three verses at length, and then I'm going to cover the rest of the chapter more briefly. These first three verses really set you up very well for getting your head around and understanding and being moved in your affections by the rest of the letter. The first three verses are rich with truths about the gospel. Look again with me at verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to, in order to, further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Paul describes himself as a servant of God and an apostle. The biblical definition for an apostle is one who has actually witnessed to Jesus' life on earth and has been sent by him into the world to preach the gospel. Often, apostles were pioneer church planters, as was the case for Paul, who started the church in Corinth, and also Titus, who started the church on Crete. Both witnesses to Christ, both church planters, both commissioned by God to preach the gospel. Paul describes Titus in verse 4 as his true child, in the common faith, it's very unusual. We might call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ. That's good and, and right and true. Rarely do we call someone we're not related to a child or a father in the faith. 
but Paul does. They're not related, but Paul's like a spiritual father to Titus as he has led him and discipled him and encouraged him and now sent him into this fiery paganism of Crete. Paul's given role and goal in life is, we're told, to further the faith of God's elect, his chosen ones. Paul's ministry is preaching the gospel to all people, confident that those whom God has chosen will respond with faith to God's transformational word. Faith is what brings people from spiritual death to spiritual life. And we're told as much in Ephesians 2, which is on the screen. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, it says in chapter 2, verse 1. Let's look at that first verse for now. Dead in transgressions and sins, lifeless, without the desire to change nor the ability to change. That's who we were. Dead people can't do anything, can they? They need an act of God in them to make them alive. Some years ago, I was called to Campbelltown Hospital to meet with a lady whose husband had just died. I found her in uh, the room where her husband was. She sat on one side of his corpse and I sat on the other and I read to her from the Bible and I prayed with her. I would love to have prayed for him, but there was absolutely no point now because he died and I'm not God. I couldn't do anything for him. He could not respond to the words of the Bible, the wonderful truths of the gospel that I was talking across him to his wife. He could not respond. If I preached my very best sermon to him that day, he would not have responded because he died. That is our spiritual state until God does a work in us by his Holy Spirit to make us alive. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. God breathed his spirit into our lives and made us alive. The Holy Spirit gives us the ability and gives us the desire to respond to the gospel with faith. God's grace through his word transforms us from death to life. Once transformed, Paul's goal for the church is godliness. Paul wants to see people come to faith and he wants to see people grow in their faith. Godliness. Christ-likeness. If you're a Christian, this ought to be your primary goal for yourself, for your whole life, your first priority. Godliness. God's word, the truth, is what transforms us. It's what changes us to be more like Jesus, to be more godly. This much is clear in the NIV translation of verse 1. Knowledge of the truth, go back, sorry. Knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. But at the same time, thanks, next slide. Those who have been transformed display truth in their lives, don't they? They live out the truth in their lives as they live godly lives. And this much seems to be true in the ESV translations. I don't know which translation you've got in your hand, but there's a little bit of a difference in them there. Did you see the ESV translation says, 
knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So, does truth lead to godliness? Or does godliness lead to truth? Or is it both? Does the truth of God's word lead us to be godly? Or is it that when we're godly, we speak truth? Turn to the person next to you, if you feel comfortable, and have a chat. Does truth lead to godliness or godliness to truth? Which is it? Is the NIV got it right? The ESV got it right? What do you think? 30 seconds. Have a little debate. Okay, hands up. Who thinks the truth leads to godliness? And who thinks godliness leads to truthful living? And who thinks both are true? (laughs) I think they're both true. Um, But I think in the context of Titus's letter, if you read the whole letter, I I really hope you read the whole letter. Like, it's great. And you'll be encouraged. Anyway, ten minutes. Um, I think in the context of Titus, Paul is mostly referring to truth that leads to godliness here, though both are true. Um, After all, Titus is in Crete, and Cretans, they're not godly people. They're very far from godly people. And he's sent to preach the gospel. There's actually two different, very serious kinds of ungodliness happening in Crete, which we're going to get to in just a little while. So Titus has been charged to preach the truth into this environment so that the ungodliness may be transformed, the ungodly may be transformed into godly people living godly lives. Knowledge of God's truth that is the Bible fosters in us an understanding of what it looks like to live a godly life. In addition to that, the work of the Holy Spirit through the pages of God's word grows in us a desire to lead a godly life. The Bible helps us know how to live a godly life and the Bible helps us to want to live a godly life if we read it. And we'll see that as we read the three chapters, we'll see that this godliness not only permeates ourselves, but it permeates our families and the communities around us as well. And that's kind of the progression in this letter. You see the gospel permeating people and then their households and then their communities. Um, around them. That's what the gospel does. It changes us and we, it impacts those around us. It impacts, indeed, the communities around us. Um, and I want to say, what an impact we can have together as a church endeavouring to impact our community with the gospel if we're all together leading godly lives and working together to lead godly lives. And can I say, Evangelism Sunday, one of the most powerful things, speaking personally, for someone who became a Christian when he was 20, 21, one of the most powerful things on display when you bring your friends into church is not only the preaching, but is you guys and the way you treat one another and the way you love one another is very, in the way you treat new people, how you indiscriminately love people. That's what we do as Christians. And that's really powerful. And so to bring... 
despite what's set up the front, I'm sure Ben will be great, he always is, but despite what's set up the front, to bring your friends into this environment, into this family, into this culture, is very powerful and I heartily encourage you to do it. <clears throat> Last thing to notice in these next first few verses is the context for our godliness. Our godliness, our ministry, our serving Jesusness has eternal consequences, we're told. Our commitment to godliness has eternal consequences. If you want to make a difference in the world, if you want to leave a legacy, commit to godliness. And God assures you, you will, because of the power in you from him. Just look at the passage again. Next slide. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. Entrusted to Paul. Ministry is about building people up, and it's long-term. You know when you fill out one of those forms and you've got to enter what your occupation is? And it's got a drop-down menu, and it's got like seven things to choose from? I'm none of those. Um, if I'm lucky, well, the one I get that's closest, I suppose, is I get Minister of Religion. Ugh, I hate that term. Minister of religion. Ministers are people who work in Canberra, right? No one knows what that means. And religion, let's not go there. I'll talk about that later if you want. <laughs> Minister of religion. I want to say builder. I want to, I should say, well, I don't know. I should say builder. I want to say builder. We're all builders uh, in church. We're building for the future, for the eternal future. Apple and Samsung are definitely not in the make it last forever business. Um, more in the make it break in it 12 months most so they buy another one business but we we're in the eternal consequences business we're building for eternity here friends God made our building plans before the beginning of time that's some forward planning right there in love he predestined his precious children to be saved to be adopted to become co-heirs with Christ and in love he has given us work to do in his name that has eternal consequences. It's come from eternity and it's heading for eternity. Think about that. As you study your Bible, you learn the truth, you grow in godliness and that godliness manifests itself not only in you but in your family, in your workplace, in your community, your neighbourhood. This godliness from God, this eternal Salvation from him manifests itself in you as you live a godly life wherever you are. As you practice godliness, you fulfill a divine and eternal plan for you and those who are the beneficiaries of your godliness. The Father sees your godliness and he delights in your godliness. Godliness matters a lot. As Christians, we don't do good because we have to. We do it because it's an immense delight. It pleases our Father in heaven. It has eternal consequences. Amazing. Sign me up. I want to be involved in this. Wow. And the same is true of our church. Our church, this church, 
was divinely planned before the beginnings of time by God. And the work that we do together in Jesus' name has a consequences that reach forward into eternity. There's nothing happening in the world that's more significant than what is happening right here and now. Not Parliament, not the UN meetings. This is where the action's at. Eternal consequences. Look again at verse 3 and be amazed. How would you finish this sentence? The hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now in his appointed season he's brought to light through Jesus, surely. That's how you finish the sentence. He's brought to life through Jesus. Surely eternal life is made manifest through Jesus. It certainly is, but that isn't what he said. Look what he said. The hope of eternal life manifests through the preaching entrusted to Paul by the command of God our Saviour. And then Timothy, and then Titus, and then countless others, and then us have been entrusted to preach the word, to teach the word, to share the gospel with others. It's incredible. As we share the gospel with people, they encounter Christ. As we live godly lives in the world, people encounter Christ as we live Christ-like lives. Have you considered that as you share the truth of the Bible with people who don't know Jesus, they encounter Jesus? In his word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and that word is Jesus. It's in God's word that we encounter Jesus. It's in knowing the truth and sharing it with others that people encounter Jesus. And it's so important to not only share God's truth with people in your words, but invite them to go to the source with you, to read the Bible with you. Over the last few years, I've invited six men to read the Bible with me and four of them said yes, much to my great surprise, which obviously I need to be asking more if that's the hit rate, right? What if we all invite six people to read the Bible with us and four of them out of six say yes? Imagine, that's hundreds of people. Wow. All right, next two bits, much faster than the last bit. Um... What's godliness look like? Well, we get that in verses 4 to 9. Titus knows the gospel. Titus has the gospel with him, in him. Paul's commissioned him to find men like him who also know the truth and who live the truth. They're godly, and he wants, him, he wants Titus to place them strategically around Crete in churches to lead churches to share the gospel that people might grow. Look at verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished, appoint elders in every town as I directed you, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe, and not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Not like those squire children. <laughs> wild. <laughs> Titus has to find some elders to lead this. Seriously, aren't the squire children just a testament to their parents? Wow. I'm so excited about staff with children. Um... Titus has to find some elders to lead the various churches. More College wasn't quite up and running at this stage, so he's got to do it himself. And Paul's given him a checklist of qualifications for these elders. Now, blameless doesn't mean perfect. 
But it does mean that for the most part, he's a godly man, a Christ-like man, not open to accusation from others that he's not godly. Today we call that above reproach, making every effort to go above and beyond to both be godly and to be seen to be godly in public and also in private. He's not a perfect husband, but he is a one-woman man who loves his wife and keeps his hands and eyes off other women. He has believing children. Now, it's up to God who gets saved and who doesn't get saved, right? Um, it's up to God whether or not this, the elder's children grow up Christian. But for now, while they're young, the elder reads them the Bible, he teaches them to pray, he teaches them to behave well, and he takes them to church every week. Of course, they're permitted one or two rebellions, but for the most part, they're good kids who at least for now, and hopefully forever, say they love Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay. Since elders or overseers manage the church, they ought to be able to manage their own lives and households, and that makes sense. So here's a further catalogue of qualities. Here's, the, here's my table. My blue table. Can you read that? Can everyone read it? Who can't read it? I mean, sorry. Anyway. <laughs> I got nods. That's good. Um, can you read it? <laughs> um, back in the old days, it was okay to state the negative and also the positive. Can you see that in the Bible? Everywhere. I'm sure we'll get back there once we all wake up to the benefits of telling people what not to do as well as what to do. Anyway. Now... I could spend 10 minutes on each item, but I love the crash leaders, so I won't. Um, I'm going to read them. I'm going to spend a few minutes, pretty much, on the last one. So elders are not to be overbearing and not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. They're not in it for themselves or for money or prestige or, worst of all, to impress the ladies in their congregations. They're in it for Jesus and to glorify him. Rather than doing those things, <clears throat> he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, one who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. They seem to be working together, these three, godly, and they're consistently godly in the way they think, speak, and act. Not perfect, but for the most part, a great example to others. <coughs> Excuse me. The elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can do two things, the bottom right-hand corner of the table. One, encourage others by his own sound doctrine. He knows his Bible, and so he teaches truthfully from the Bible. And secondly, refute those who oppose it. If people are wrong, he tells them they're wrong, and particularly if they're opposing the gospel in his church, well, he really, really tells them they're wrong, and they need to stop. And that's a big part of what Titus has been sent to do. This has come up twice now in the last few weeks. Is at the end of 2 Corinthians, the whole idea of rebuking, correcting, calling out mistruth, calling out heresy for what it is and making sure it doesn't continue in our church. Elders do that. Elders, ministers, ministry leaders must know their Bibles well so they can teach people faithfully and truthfully and can live a godly life themselves and they can tell people when they've got it wrong. You're wrong in your thinking here. In the Bible. You're wrong in the way you're living. See, it says here in the Bible, you need to stop. Elders do that. Ministry leaders do that. 
I reckon if you've been in church a long time and never been corrected by your minister, either you are, you genuinely are a very, very godly person, which is fantastic, or maybe your minister just isn't doing his job and needs to kind of pluck up the courage to call you out in your sin. And if you have been called out in your sin by your minister, praise God for your minister. I find it hard to confront people in their sin. I don't want to hurt people's feelings, but it's part of my role. It's particularly hard to do in our culture, isn't it? To say, you're wrong. I can't do that in our culture. You're right and I'm right and I'll go over here and you go over there and we'll both be right. Separate. That's our culture. But I think for the sake of our own godliness and our church's godliness, which is based on actual truth, there is actual truth in the Bible, despite what the world says, for the sake of our ability to impact others with the gospel, we actually need to get better at taking criticism and maybe giving it as well in love to one another. I don't give it very well. I don't take it particularly well. I'm getting better, I think. Um, I need to do better at giving criticism and taking criticism in love. And maybe you do too. And I suspect most of us do. And if that sounds harsh, you should really block your ears for the next seven verses. <laughs> All unleashes. Um, this is a great catalogue for a godly leader. It's what... Um, is this what your leaders are like? They ought to be. From my experience, they certainly are. Um, Jono and Ben are godly men. Do you encourage them? Do you praise them? Do you pray for them that they'll keep being godly leaders? Do you pray for your growth group leaders? Do you encourage them? Do you praise them in their godliness? Please do. In what ways do you need to do better out of this catalogue? I wonder which qualities on this list don't apply to every Christian? None. <laughs> they all do, right? In what ways do you need to do better? Speak to your leader, speak to a brother or sister in Christ, get some encouragement and prayer to lead a more godly life. Finally, thirdly, <coughs> elders, church leaders, need to know the truth and model the truth so that they aren't blown back and forth in the crucible of church and community, particularly a community like Crete. Titus and his elders were up against it in Crete, where rebellion and godlessness existed on both ends of the spectrum. I'll read it again and I'll explain. Verse 10, there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. <clears throat> Cretans always lies, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true, therefore rebuke them sharply, for they'll be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupt and do not believe, nothing's pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good, says Paul of these people. Wow. So, the spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, we have this, there's just two kinds of failing going on. Rebellion in Crete. On one end, there's the Pharisees, the Judaizers. They depend on law to be saved. They depend on themselves, in other words, and their good works 
in order to be saved. And not only did they think that law-keeping will save them, they pushed this teaching onto others, verse 11. Their motivation is their own dishonest gain, probably money, certainly status. On the other end of the spectrum is the average Joe Cretan, who's a liar and a brute and a glutton, and not interested in law-keeping whatsoever, happily doing whatever they want, whenever they want, without a care in the world. I'll do what I want, when I want. Another word for this is licentiousness, and it's alive and well today. And with modern science and technology, licentiousness is tragically having a field day. A woman's right to choose has taken away basic human rights from unborn people, leading to a massive increase in abortions the past few decades across the world. Dignity at the end, aka euthanasia, is taking away rights to life from elderly people and particularly unwell people. The supposed massive increase in gender dysphoria is fueling a generation of young people tricked into believing that gender is their choice, not God's choice. Did you know that 50 years ago, 0.03% of people had any struggles with gender dysphoria and they were all males? Today, it's a massive issue amongst girls. Law keepers, lawbreakers, neither are seeking God and it reminds me very much of the story of the two sons, often incorrectly referred to as the story of the prodigal son. It's the two sons. They're both wrong, just as much as each other. For a prodigal son, cops an earful. The prodigal son, if you don't know the story, took half, the supposed prodigal son, took half of all of his father's stuff and he ran away and he squandered it on wild living. He was a lawbreaker with no love for his father whatsoever. His brother stayed behind and he worked hard, but his motivation was the same, to get his father's stuff. Neither had any love for the father and exposed himself when his brother came back and his father showed his love and grace and threw him a party. He's like, this is a joke, I'm not going to this party. Neither loved the father, both just wanted his stuff and this is what happened in Crete. Saved by law, they think, no interested in law or being saved whatsoever and this is what Titus is up against. What does this mean for us today? Well, I've got an exciting encouragement for you all and a stern warning. First thing is you've got an opportunity to make an eternal impact on yourself and your family and whoever you come into contact with by committing to godliness by reading God's word. Starting with your family and rippling out into the world around you, godliness has an eternal impact on people. All you have to do is pick this up and read it, come to church, don't fall asleep during the talks, go to growth group and be eager to learn the truth, be ready for growth group, be prepared, read the passage in advance, maybe read the questions in advance if you've already got them in your hand. Make an effort, diarise time in your week to commit to learning the truth so that you might grow in godliness because the only way you will is by reading the truth. And I've seen even ratty teenagers grow in godliness as they've read the truth of God's word. You will grow in godliness. You will have eternal consequences by your actions in this world. How good's that? Secondly, you will become ungodly if you neglect the truth. You will slip and slide. If you don't read your Bible, if you do sleep through sermons, 
If you're lazy and non-committal with growth group, you'll slide slowly but surely into either lawlessness, sin, or strangely, you can slip into legalism, Pharisaism. You'll have in your mind that you have to come to church because you're not really sure why anymore and you have to go to Bible study and you feel bad because you haven't read your Bible and you're supposed to read your Bible and you slip into legalism if you're not actually immersing yourself in God's word, the truth, and seeing his grace afresh. You, you can slip either way into lawlessness or even into legalism, which leads to guilt, which drives you further away from the gospel. We start to fail at these self-made laws that we've made for ourselves and instead of consuming God's word and being reminded of his transforming grace. Godliness is a joy for Christians, a blessing, an opportunity to fulfill God's plans and have eternal consequences on yourself and others. And I'm really excited about this letter. I hope to see you next week. I've asked the boss if I can come back. I haven't heard back yet. <laughs> I hope I can. We'll see. Let me pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, thank you so much for this amazing letter. And thank you so much for these wonderful people who you chose before the beginning of time. We thank you for those in the room who have not yet put their trust in Jesus and ask you might work in them mightily. Move them to repentance and faith. God, we thank you so much for this letter that we get to dive into. Help us to make time uh, to read our Bibles, to study your word deeply, to come to church with open minds and hearts and growth group too, so that we will learn the truth, so that we will grow in godliness for our own benefit and those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.